This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the first episode of a two-part special focusing on the life and crimes of necrophilic Scottish serial killer Dennis Nilsson. Typically on British Murders I focus on lesser known cases and more localised stories, however at the end of each season I like to round it off with an episode or two on one of our small island's more notorious murderers. The one I'm focusing on this time around is up there with the worst of the worst. If you're from the UK, you'll undoubtedly have heard of him, especially after ITV's drama miniseries Des, starring David Tennant, was beamed to our living rooms in September 2020. In this first episode, I will discuss Dennis's early life and background up until his arrest in February 1983. Next week, in part two, I will discuss Dennis's murderous timeline whilst providing backgrounds on each of the unfortunate men whose lives were taken away by the man who would be forever known as the Muswell Hill murderer. As always on British Murders, let's break the ice a little bit before we get into the story. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. This week's Dad Fact is... To get rid of calluses on your hands, soak them in warm water and buff with a pumice stone. Scrub with a mix of 8 tablespoons of sugar and 200 millilitres of olive oil, rinse with warm water and apply a thick hand lotion. I don't really need to try that. I'm not manual. I'm an office worker. <laughs> I used to work in a supermarket. That would have been helpful back then. I had really dry, cracked hands. The second and final opening icebreaker segment is this. Satsuji Haiku. You'll notice that's a new jingle. Here is this week's haiku. A plumber's nightmare. Unidentified grey meat. Chicken. This is not. I'm writing the haikus for each episode now. I've completed both volumes of Rose Bundy's Serial Killer's Book of Haiku series. A haiku is a Japanese poem made up of 17 syllables in three lines of 5, 7 and 5. It's also meant to be read in one breath. I'd love you to send some of your efforts in if you want me to read them on a future episode. I try and make them case related as I have with this one. You'll come to find out why later. But if you want to send some in, please do and I will read them out. 
With the ice now well and truly broken, let's get down to business. This high-profile case was suggested by listener Kat Luth back in November 2021, and the themes discussed throughout this two-part special are serial murder, necrophilia, and dismemberment. Continue listening, as always, at your own discretion. Dennis Andrew Nilsson was born on November 23, 1945, in Fraserburgh, located in the far northeast corner of Aberdeenshire, Scotland. A seaside town, Fraserburgh has a couple of lovely-looking beaches that TripAdvisor users rate highly, so the setting for Dennis's upbringing, in theory, couldn't have been better. As we know, though, life doesn't always work that way. Dennis's parents were Olav Magnus Moxheim and Elizabeth Duthie White. You may be thinking, hang on a minute, I thought his surname was Nilsson. You'd be correct. Nilsson was a name adopted by Olav after he arrived in Fraserburgh in the early 1940s. Being a former soldier in the Norwegian army, Olav had decided to flee his home country after Nazi Germany's occupation of Denmark and Norway during the Second World War. Elizabeth was a local lassie based in Fraserburgh who married Olav shortly after he arrived in the Brock. The locals have informed me that's what they call Fraserburgh, the Brock. I say the locals, I mean Google. Dennis was the middle of three children to Olav and Elizabeth. His older brother, Olav Nilsson Jr., was two years older than Dennis, so he was likely born in 1943. Sylvia, Dennis's younger sister, was a couple of years younger than him, so she was presumably born in 1947. My research indicates that Dennis's parents' marriage wasn't exactly a fairy tale, and it wasn't long after Sylvia came along that they divorced. After Olav Sr. moved out, Elizabeth and the kids continued living with her parents, Andrew and Lily White. They helped their daughter raise her children, and Dennis was said to have been particularly fond of Andrew, his grandfather. He loved his granddad tremendously and looked up to him, but at the tender age of five, Dennis experienced true heartache and loss for the first time. His beloved granddad, who was realistically the only good father figure he'd had, suddenly passed away. Andrew's health wasn't the greatest, and it rapidly declined in the weeks leading up to his death. The end came suddenly from a heart attack whilst he was fishing in the North Sea. Andrew was just 62 years old when he died. One of Dennis's most traumatic memories was seeing his beloved granddad's corpse on display at his funeral. Perhaps an open casket in the presence of children wasn't the greatest idea in retrospect. He would later use that experience to form part of the explanation as to why his behaviour became what it did in his adult years. Elizabeth went on to remarry and had four more children with her second husband, Aberdeen-based labourer Adam Scott. An already shy and reserved child, Dennis became even more introverted and would often opt to spend time on his own rather than with his siblings or any other kids in his hometown. Saying that, he deeply resented Olav Jr., so he likely wouldn't have spent much time with him anyway, though he did have a close bond with his little sister Sylvia. Dennis's sexuality plays a huge part in this story, so it makes sense that we look at that next. When a boy reaches puberty, it's a challenging time. Trust me, I know. It became even more challenging in Dennis's case 
when he discovered his main sexual attraction was towards other boys rather than solely towards girls. Remember, Dennis was born in 1945, so he'll have started puberty in, what, the mid to late 50s? LGBT rights back then were vastly different to what they are now, and the Scottish Parliament only legalised sexual activity between people of the same sex in Scotland in 1981. Scotland was the last jurisdiction in Europe to abolish the death penalty for same-sex sexual intercourse in 1889, with same-sex marriage being legal since December 16th, 2014. We'll never know whether it's true, but Dennis would say in his adult years that he wasn't gay by definition, nor was he straight. He claimed to have had sexual relationships with both men and women, though he did admit it would be men if he had to choose one over the other. Perhaps due to confusion regarding his sexuality, Dennis said he wasn't sexually active throughout high school, so he most likely lost his virginity as an adult. I don't know whether that was with a man or a woman. However, not being sexually active didn't stop Dennis from occasionally molesting his little sister. During his school years, Dennis was one of many typical students. He was rarely in detention, stayed out of trouble, and kept to himself. He much preferred focusing on writing poetry and doodling on a sketch pad than fighting and causing a nuisance. Likely because his dad served in the Norwegian Armed Forces, Dennis aspired to join the British Army as soon as he left high school. He even joined the Army Cadet Force while still in high school. That's the British Army's national youth organisation. In 1961, at the age of 16, Dennis completed high school and immediately applied to join the army, and he worked a few different jobs whilst that application went through and was reviewed. To his delight, the army catering corps accepted Dennis. He thought that cooking was another form of art, and he felt he would be able to express himself in that role. He completed his training at Aldershot Garrison, one of the UK's largest, and passed his official catering exam, which allowed him to become a chef. During his 11 years in the army, Dennis was stationed worldwide. Time was spent in West Germany as it was known back then with the Royal Fusiliers City of London Regiment. He served in what is now the Yemeni city of Aden with the Queen's own borderers. With the Trucial Oman Scouts, he was stationed in the Persian Gulf. He spent time serving in Cyprus and Berlin with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders and he was also briefly a chef for the Queen's Guard near Balmoral Castle in Aberdeenshire. While in the army, Dennis would often write to his mum, telling her about what life was like for him wherever he was stationed. He continued to write poetry, using his army service as inspiration, and even used his free time to watch operas when his respective tours ended. Opera was another of Dennis's creative interests. In October 1972, Dennis's time with the British Army ended. He left at the rank of corporal a month before his 27th birthday. After spending a couple of months back home with family, Dennis decided to move almost 600 miles south to England's capital city of London in December 1972. Talk about moving as far away from home as you possibly can. My research suggests Dennis's sexuality was becoming a topic of conversation more frequently at home, so it appears as if he took the flight rather than the fight option. 
He wanted to join the Metropolitan Police and was due to start police training in December 1972. The police training course took place at Hendon Police College and lasted four months, with Dennis passing in April 1973. During those four months, Dennis is said to have realised that he was morbidly fascinated with dead bodies. He spent a lot of extracurricular time in the morgues and relished his on-duty visits there. From April to December of 1973, Dennis served as a probation officer in Wilsdon, an area of northwest London. At some point in those eight months, Dennis had his first interaction with the police as a suspect. One of his colleagues, a man named David Painter, alleged that Dennis had, on one occasion, taken illicit pictures of him whilst he slept. After confronting Dennis, the pair fought, with David needing hospital treatment when it was all said and done. David went on to drop the charges against Dennis after he was brought in for questioning. Upon leaving the Metropolitan Police, Dennis became a security guard, a job he remained in for five months, which brings our story to May 1974. At that point in his life, Dennis decided to join the civil service, and initially he became an entry-level clerical officer in the Manpower Services Commission, or MSC. The MSC's purpose was to coordinate vocational training and manage the government's vocational training programmes. It was in operation from 1974 to 1988. The story will continue after these quick messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. In late 1975, I believe it was November, Dennis moved into 195 Melrose Avenue with 20-year-old David Gallaghan, whom he met outside a pub in Cricklewood, North London, a few days earlier. Two properties in this story are of great significance, and 195 Melrose Avenue in Cricklewood is one of them. Melrose Avenue, as I'll refer to it going forward, is a ground floor, two bedroom flat with its own back garden. I've had a look at the interior on right move and it looks like a lovely little flat, but clearly it's been done out. The most recent price paid for it was £493,000 in April 2016, which baffles me considering what happened there. Bringing it back to Dennis and David, some sources claim the pair had a relationship with others stating they merely had sex now and then, and others stating that no sexual activity took place at all. We know that both men would bring home casual sexual partners, males in both cases, and their relationship steadily declined after roughly 12 months. In 1977, after two years of living together, they'd both had enough. Dennis's version of the story has him asking David to leave, whereas David insisted he was the one who ended it and just walked out. Now living as a lonely single bachelor, Dennis turned to the bottle and began consuming alcohol regularly. His ability to drink excessive amounts of alcohol would later form part of his MO 
as not many people he drank with could keep up with him. They'd typically black out. Three separate relationships were established at different times, though none of the men in question opted to take things further and move in with Dennis. Naturally, that led to him believing he was unlive-withable, a word I feel I may have just made up. Six years were spent working at the MSC, with Dennis's next role being that again of a clerical officer, but this time at a job centre based in London's renowned Denmark Street. After that, he worked at another job centre, before finally settling in the northwest London area of Kentish Town in June 1982. Dennis was promoted from clerical officer to executive officer, with his new role seeing him based at Kentish Town's large and lively job centre. Around a year before securing the promotion, Dennis had been forced to vacate the flat at Melrose Avenue by the landlord, and he'd moved into an attic flat at 23 Cranley Gardens in Muswell Hill, North London. Specifically, his flat was 23D Cranley Gardens. Dennis's old landlord wanted to renovate the building, by the way. He wasn't kicked out due to the crimes I'll cover in next week's episode. 23 Cranley Gardens is the second property of great significance in this story. According to Rightmove, the three-bedroom flat most recently sold for £285,000 in August 2015. Dennis lived there with his dog Blip, a collie cross. The job in Kentish Town earned Dennis an annual salary of £7,000, roughly £26,500 in 2022, and his mum told him at the back end of January 1983 that his stepsister Violet had had a baby. Said to be delighted at the news, Dennis had no idea that his world would crumble in on him two weeks later. At the beginning of February 1983, the residents at 23 Cranley Gardens suddenly started having issues with their plumbing. For some context, 23 Cranley Gardens was one large house. I believe it had four separate bedsits that advertised as flats. Essentially, each tenant had their own bedrooms and a kitchen area, but the bathrooms were communal. Dennis's flat was unique because he had his own personal bathroom, which he used for a specific reason during his killing spree, which I'll cover in part two. Back to the plumbing issue. The toilets weren't flushing as they should, and it appeared as if there was a blockage somewhere that was preventing the system from working properly. Dennis even wrote a complaint letter to the landlord's estate agents on February 4th, 1983, expressing his concern regarding the blocked drains. Fellow tenant Jim Alcock attempted to resolve the problem by purchasing an acidic toilet cleaner and pouring it down the toilet as instructed on the packaging. Hoping for the best, Jim flushed the loo once more, but the water simply rose to the top of the bowl and remained there. With that particular toilet out of order, Fiona Bridges, another tenant, placed a note outside the bathroom which read, Please don't use this toilet. She then decided to call for professional help. Local plumber Mike Welch first visited the property on Friday, February 4th, 1983, but couldn't figure out what the problem was. Emergency drainage and plumbing company Dino Rod, known now as simply Dino, were called and said they would call out at the beginning of the following week. Plumbing engineer Michael Catron was sent by Dino Rod to Cranley Gardens, and he arrived there in the early evening of Tuesday, February 8th, 1983. After lifting a manhole cover outside the property, Michael was shocked when his nose was greeted with an unbearably foul odour. 
Like a professional, he persisted and shone his torch down the manhole. He was surprised to see around 30 to 40 pieces of what he could only describe as pieces of meat, although they were greyish in colour. Concerned about what he may have discovered, Michael called his supervisor and reported it. With the residents of 23 Cranley Gardens, except for Dennis, in earshot of the phone call, they were anxious to find out what would be happening next. Michael explained that it would be looked at again in the morning due to the lack of light. Returning home from work shortly before the engineer left, Dennis was told what he'd seen. In a conversation with Michael and Jim, Dennis apparently said, It looks to me like someone's been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. The next part is unbelievable. Later that night, Dennis lifted the manhole cover and entered it via the ladder. Shining his torch all over to ensure he didn't miss one piece, he picked up each piece of greyish-looking meat and transported them to the property's back garden, where he buried them. Those greyish-looking pieces of meat were, in fact, pieces of human flesh, removed from Dennis's many murder victims. His plan was already in motion with his comment to Michael Catron before he left for the evening. Dennis planned to go out, buy a load of Kentucky Fried Chicken, KFC as we know it now, bring it back to Cranley Gardens, mix it with the human flesh he'd removed from the manhole, and then put the human flesh and KFC concoction back down the manhole. His theory was that if they found some pieces of KFC, they might think that the rest of it was bad KFC, or they just thought it was some kind of accident. I don't know what his plan was. It makes zero sense to anyone other than Dennis Nilsson, but he never got the chance to execute it. Michael Catron arrived back at 23 Cranley Gardens with his supervisor, Gary Wheeler, bright and early on February 9th, 1983. To their surprise, the meat pieces discovered the previous evening were no longer in the manhole. Further searches led to the two engineers finding some small pieces of what was later revealed to be human flesh and four small human bones in one of the property's pipes. As each bathroom had its own set of pipes leading down to the manhole, it was only a matter of time before they realised it was the attic flat's pipes in which they had been found, Dennis Nilsson's attic flat. The police were called, and the findings were sent off to be analysed by pathologist David Bowen, who confirmed they were of human origin. Upon hearing of David Bowen's findings, the police officers waited outside Dennis's flat until he returned home from work that evening. After explaining to Dennis why they were there when he got home, they asked to speak further inside his flat. As soon as the officers walked through the door, the unmistakable stench of rotting human flesh hit their noses. At first, Dennis played dumb and appeared shocked when the officers explained that human flesh and bones had been found in his flat's waste pipe. He was abruptly told to cut the shit and asked by the officers where the rest of the body was. As if confessing to what he had done was a huge weight lifted from his chest, Dennis replied by saying, in two plastic bags in the wardrobe next door. He knew he'd finally been caught out and his four-year killing spree was over. The officers at the flat immediately cautioned Dennis and arrested him on suspicion of murder. As for who he had murdered, they had no idea. Now loaded into the back of a police car driving the five-minute journey from Cranley Gardens to Hornsey Police Station, 
Dennis felt the need to confess further. When the officers asked him if the remains in the two plastic bags at his flat belonged to one victim or two, neither of them could have predicted it when the unassuming man staring out of the window in the back seat replied by saying, 15 or 16, since 1978. And that concludes the end of part one regarding the story of the Muswell Hill murderer, Dennis Nilsson. This week, it wasn't a very murder-heavy episode as we focus more on his background and upbringing. Consider this episode a prequel to the brutal events to come next week. In part two, I'll be discussing the details and timeline of each of Dennis's known murders and attempted murders. I'll also discuss the trial, sentence and aftermath of the case. Thanks again to Cat Luth for suggesting this one. I've got one new review to read out this week. Thank you Apple Podcast user Janny39 for leaving British Murders a 5 star rating and review. Janny said, Really enjoy listening. Feels like a friend is having a chat with you and telling reek stories or real stories. Could be a Yorkshire word or it could be a typo. Thank you. Also like the daddy tales. Thanks for that Janny. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, on Facebook, Podchaser, or over at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. You can leave me a voicemail message on BritishMurders.com. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links to each of those on my website. And please continue emailing your case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or just message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you will get a shout out for your efforts. That's it for this week. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.